The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's go together to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for today, for every Lord's Day we have to gather together as your people is a tremendous blessing to us. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for worship. We thank you for the blessing of the church and the fellowship that we share. Or continue to help us to love one another, to prefer one another over and above ourselves, and together to walk as a people standing faithfully upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. We pray for your help in this time. Lord, as we come to your word and we consider all that you have revealed to us, as we partake together of the Lord's Supper, may it truly be a time of communing with you and with one another. And we pray you do all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to join me in your Bibles, we will be in the book of 1 John this evening. 1 John. And we're going to be all over the book of 1 John, so I don't have a verse to point you to. It's just 1 John. We're not going to read the whole book, but we will be looking around. Now, it may seem like a simple question to answer, but I assure you that if you asked a group of people, what is a Christian, you will get quite a variety of answers. In fact, I would say that because there is so much confusion about this question, I've spent a lot of my time in ministry talking to people only to realize that many who profess to be Christians have never actually sought to answer that question. It's something that has been assumed as knowledge or is tied to an activity like going to church or Join, uh, uh, going or joining a church or being baptized or having a way of, of expressing Christian uh, life and beliefs and actions. There's a, a wide spectrum of ideas that different people have. For example, here are some highlights from one article that tries to deal with this question. This person was writing from their own perspective and said, since I came into my spiritual identity, I have identified as a progressive Christian. I've always been fascinated by Jesus, by his message, by his mission, and I have dedicated my life to it, whatever form that may take. But I have never been completely comfortable as a progressive Christian. Yes, the term helps somewhat to alleviate the sense people sometimes get that I'm some kind of crazy, Bible-thumping evangelical trying to convert them. A progressive Christian, most of them ask, they've never heard of it. But this question is the source of my discomfort, the catalyst for the battle raging inside of me. What is God? I have decided it is finally time to stop fighting this battle and accept myself for what I am. I am an atheist, a Christian atheist. I still believe in God. What I do not accept is belief in a theistic deity, a being that created the universe, holds the universe together, or exists in or apart from the universe. God is not a being, but being itself. The world, the universe, is all that there is for us. Through Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, we experience transcendental being, spiritual alertness, and the power of ultimate love. This is why Jesus' worldly message of distributive economic and social justice is so important. Of course, she's a communist. 
the living God, not the theistic God of the past, connects and surrounds us all. And as long as some among us live in poverty and destitution and oppression, we fall short of the glory of God, of our ultimate potential. To put it shortly, the social gospel is spiritual. And she goes on and on. So, is this so-called Christian atheist a Christian? She would say she is. What about another group that says, we accept as Christian any individual or group who devoutly, thoughtfully, seriously, and prayerfully believe themselves to be attempting to follow the teaching of Yeshua of Nazareth as they interpret those teachings to be. Is that what it means to be called a Christian? Attempting to follow Jesus as we interpret those teachings to be? What about groups like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses? They will tell you unequivocally, look it up on their websites, they state emphatically that they are Christians. The Jehovah's Witnesses say on their website, we try to follow closely the teachings and behavior of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the key to salvation. When people become Jehovah's Witnesses, they are baptized in the name of Jesus. We offer our prayers in Jesus' name. We believe that Jesus is the head or the one appointed to have authority over every man. We believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, not part of a trinity. We do not believe that the soul is immortal, that there is any basis in Scripture for saying that God tortures people in an everlasting hell, or that those who take the lead in religious activities should have titles that elevate them above others. Is this consistent with the definition of Christianity? It's no wonder that over 70% of the American adult population claims to be Christian because it seems as though the prevailing idea is that if we want to call something Christian, it simply is. There's a lot of confusion about the question. If only we had somewhere to turn to find the answer. And so as we conclude this short series we've done during the Lord's Supper on Christian assurance. I want us to answer that question. What is a Christian and how do I know if I am one? And we'll do this by doing an overview of the book of 1 John. We're going to look at key themes and passages throughout the book. And in doing so, I hope we'll have a better sense of what the Bible says, what God says about what Christianity truly is. There are many definitions There are many ideas. But what has God said in his word? That's really all that matters. And specifically, we're looking at 1 John because throughout the book, John writes this phrase, this is how we know. He says that over and over. This is how we know who the children of God are. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know whether or not we are Christians. And John concludes the letter with an affirmation that our assurance... Our knowing what a Christian is and whether or not we are one is the heart of why he wrote this letter in the first place. In chapter 5 and verse 13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's his statement. I write all of this so that you can have assurance that you have eternal life. So let's look at the letter So that if we say we believe in the name of the Son of God, we may know that we have eternal life. Now, I want to use John's specific language from the text as we look at tests of genuine faith. So look at chapter 1 and verse 7. He writes, 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's what we want. That's what we're after. And so the question, as John frames it, is do you walk in the light? And he's going to answer that by laying out. Contrary to what I've said, others have proposed in terms of what Christianity is, but actually laying out a framework that says this is Christianity over here and that over there is not. In other words, despite what many people say, despite what any religious group wants to claim about what they think Christianity basically is, however they want to define it, there is a straightforward way to see whether or not we are actually Christians and whether or not we believe what Christianity actually is according to God. And as it pertains to our assurance, the question for each person is, am I walking in the light? And so we're going to take three tests to help us answer this. We'll flip back and forth, like I said, not in a straight line here so you can keep your Bibles open. The first is a test of faith. What do you believe about Jesus? Now, one of the first things I want to talk to a person about is what they believe. What is your understanding of life, about God, about the world, about uh, man and his nature and how all of that works together? The Bible as a whole, but especially 1 John, presents us what with a reality that what we have faith in matters and our ideas have consequences. So the first way we want to look at it is to see how John answers this question for us. Am I walking in the light? And, and the way we, we answer that, we have, to, we have to ask, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, fully God and fully man who lived a perfect life died a sinner's death, and was raised from the dead. Now, of course, John is not writing outside of a historical context. He's very much responding to false teaching that had already arisen in his day. False teaching was circulating, and so John is responding to that by identifying it for what it is and correcting it with the truth. Remember, we said he's looking at these big themes throughout the book and he's saying, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And so he deals with the false teaching first about Jesus. First look at chapter two, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And then skip down to verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And then over to chapter 5 and verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. 
And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And then down to verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So the lie that John is addressing, the lie that was going around the church and spread by false teachers was that Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh, but was God only appearing to be as a man. In other words, his flesh wasn't real human flesh. His nature was by no means real human nature. They could not reconcile the spiritual or the divine and the physical because in their minds, everything that is physical is associated with evil and everything that is spiritual or divine is associated with good. And the two could not coexist together. And so John is responding right out of the gate uh, back in the very first verse of the book. In chapter one and verse one, he says, that which was from the beginning, Okay, so here he's affirming Jesus' divinity. He's God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And that's his humanity. So you have his divinity and his humanity right there in one verse. His flesh and blood. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, again, divine, and was made manifest to us, human. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice, from the very beginning, John is making this a test of fellowship. In other words, if you want to number yourself amongst the Christians, among those who are legitimately in the church as the sons and daughters of God, you must believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And later, John addresses this error again. He writes in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. And here it is. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And then down in verse 14 of chapter 4, he writes, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is God. So John masterfully addresses both the human and the divine natures of the Lord Jesus Christ. One man, two natures, fully God fully man. And if you do not embrace this, you cannot rightly call yourself a Christian. This is one of the fundamental basic realities of what it means to be a follower of Christ, walking in the light, to believe that Jesus was and is the man who was and is God. 
And just to be abundantly clear, John summarizes this truth in chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so this is the first test. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who was he? Who is he? And if we ask this question today, you will get many different answers just like we see in the Bible. Remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he got a variety of answers. And today would be no different. In fact, we'd get far more in terms of answers. He was a good man. He was a moral teacher. He was a prophet. He was a godlike man. He was an enlightening man. But, G- but John tells us very clearly, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And to be a Christian, you have to believe that. Your doctrine of Christ is essential because Jesus Christ is the faith's central figure. You can't miss the mark on this one. Jesus wasn't the appearance of God without true flesh. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't an enlightened man. He was... He, he wasn't just a human man, but he was a human man who got hungry, who got tired, who was susceptible to sickness, whose flesh was wounded, whose blood was drawn, and who died a real human death. But he was and is God. And one of the reasons why it's so important to get this is because our salvation hangs on the issue. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Then who died on the cross and why? What was the point? Without his flesh, there is no sacrifice. There is no blood. And there is no one to look to to redeem us from our sins because he dies a death in our place that we deserve. If Jesus isn't God, then the worth of his death and the sacrifice that was made is useless because apart from being God, Jesus would have never been able to fulfill the entirety of the law of God on our behalf and be capable of taking on, as John writes in chapter 2 and verse 2, the sins of the whole world. So let me say it this way because this is what John is saying and I know perhaps I'm saying Uh, a lot of this uh, maybe repetitively, but I think it's very important that we keep this in our minds. If you do not know and affirm and believe and confess who Jesus truly is, you are not a Christian. No matter what you say, if this is not what you will believe, you are no more a Christian because you say so than I am a jar of peanut butter because I say I am. Jesus Christ is God who, before the foundations of the earth, covenanted with the Father to live a human life, to be born of a virgin, and in that human life, he would do everything that was required of man because we couldn't, because of our sin nature and because of our rebellion against God. Jesus lived a perfect life, free from sin, and as to the law, he did everything perfectly. Never an evil thought, Never an evil deed, never an evil intention. He died in the place of sinners on the cross, taking on the penalty that all of us deserve. And then he rose from the grave, securing victory over sin and death forever and ever for all who believe in him. And so if you don't believe that, you can say whatever you want, but you're not a Christian. 
If you don't believe this, or if you have some other idea about Jesus, I hope you'll consider what I'm saying and ask more questions and dig deeper. I'm not mad at you, but I want what's best for you. And I want you to believe this, that this is an unmovable, absolute reality of the Christian faith. And if you do believe this, this is, that this is true in its entirety, and you have placed your faith in this Christ, the true and living God-man, you, have, you can have every reasonable assurance of your salvation. Faith in Christ as he is and who he is is essential to saving faith. And so affirming this great truth, Jesus shows us is one way we can have assurance. So what do you believe about Jesus? That's the first test of faith. Second is a test of obedience. How are you living your life? Our standing before God as justified sinners as a people who are forgiven of sin by grace through faith, is in no way by our works whatsoever, but by the work of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. And it's credited to our account solely by the grace of God, who gives us the gift of faith that we might believe on Christ and repent of our sins. That needs to ring in our ears over and over and over again, lest we think or believe that we're ever earning something before God when we do good works. We cannot and we will not earn anything before God by our works in terms of our standing before him. You are either in Adam as an unjustified sinner or you are standing in Christ as a justified sinner. And once you are standing in Christ, you cannot be taken away. You cannot lose that standing, nor is there ever any other greater standing to earn or to achieve. It is all the work of God. It is all by the grace of God. It is all to the glory of God alone. Now, having said that, we must recognize that the Bible is full of imperatives. It is full of commands that as Christians, we are obligated to follow. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John reemphasizes this point in chapter 2 and verses 3 through 6. He says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then in chapter 3 and verse 6 he writes, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So you see, the question about how you live is crucial. It's a test. It's evidence as to whether or not God has truly done a work of transformation in your life. Here's the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. The non-Christian hears the law of God and what do they think? That's restrictive. That's unfair. That's too rigid, that's ridiculous, that's archaic, that's unrealistic. But the Christian hears the law of God and says, like David, I love the law of God. I love that God has given me a standard to look to so that I know how I might live my life 
in the most fruitful, the most joy-filled, the most God-glorifying way because I know what he has commanded is for my good. And the result of obedience is far greater than what I can achieve in my finite wisdom and my finite understanding of how I think I want to live my life by the flesh. Now, as a non-Christian, a person rebels against this and kicks against the law of God. That's the nature of sin. That is the nature of every single person apart from the transforming work of God in the Lord Jesus. But a Christian says, Jesus says, if I love him, I will do what he commands. And I do love him. And I do desire to honor him through obedience because I know it's not only for his glory, but it is also for my good. And not only then is there a love for the law, but by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us and by utilizing the means of grace that God has provided for our strength that we might sustain as believers, we are carried along in our ability to obey God without an obligation to sin like we once had. And so you see, our works don't get us into heaven beyond the grave at all. Our works don't give us our standing before God. Our works are, however, the natural overflow of life with God when our works are consistent with his word. Does that mean you won't sin? No. And John answers that as well. Christians living in this world, in a sinful world, in our flesh, we will sin. But John tells us there's a stark contrast contrast between when a person who is living or walking in the light sins versus when a person who lives and walks in the darkness sins. He writes in chapter 2 in verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's great. That's wonderful. That's very helpful. But if anyone does sin, And he's giving us an indication there. We will. So if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. At the end of chapter one, he makes it very clear that you will never live life perfectly on this earth. You will sin. You are a sinner. Even though you, you desire to honor God, you desire to walk in the light. But John writes, beginning in chapter one in verse eight, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So you see, verses 8 and 10 are an acknowledgement that we will and that we do, in fact, sin. And to say otherwise is a lie, and it is to call God a liar. But thanks be to God that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that when we confess our sins because of Christ, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now perhaps it's helpful here to think about this in terms of raising our children and even if you don't have children you hopefully have parents who loved you and took care of you and at least understand what I'm getting at here and if not even that I hope you can at least know something of this through your experience with others now listen I love my children unconditionally without fail and no matter what they do that love for them remains in me and it will never go away 
were it necessary, I would lay my life down for them instantly without hesitation. That's not changing. And that's only a small fraction of the love that God has for his children. He sees us as his children in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that love I have for my children does not diminish the fact that I demand obedience out of them. They have an obligation to God to obey me as their father for their good. I expect them to do what they are asked with a heart and a desire to do so because they know I'm asking them to do what's best for them, what serves others, and what contributes to the family. In that way, God has given his law that we might walk in obedience for our good and to serve others and to contribute to the body of Christ. And so John reminds us that when we understand this as Christians, it will be evidenced in our lives. If it's not evidenced in our lives, we have no assurance of being in the faith. Look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. John writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so very straightforwardly, John is saying, children of God will live lives that reflect that they are the children of God. They will practice righteousness. Now, it's really important that we put these two tests together. Test one about faith and test two about obedience are not separate. What I mean by that is a person can articulate all of the best doctrines in the world in the most magnificent, biblical, faithful way possible. Still, if their life is in no way reflective of one who actually obeys that doctrine, they don't actually believe it. Likewise, a person can be sweet, they can be nice, They can be kind, they can be seemingly loving and caring and generous and whatever other way you want to describe a person, but if they do not believe that Jesus is who he says he is, they cannot be a Christian. And so you see, you can't have right beliefs without obedience, and you can't have obedience without right beliefs. They don't work separately separately from one another, but they are inseparably tied to one another. This is, in more theological language, if you will, the relationship between the law and the gospel. They are inseparably tied to one another and they cannot be taken apart. And a child of God will see the effects of both of them in their life and without both of them present, that's a problem. You can say you believe in Jesus, but do you live with love for the world? John says you don't have works identifying you as a Christian. Or... Do you do all of the good works, but you don't think that Jesus is the Son of God? John says you don't have any belief identifying that you're a Christian. 
If you are truly a Christian, your life will be filled with a true recognition of what you were and what you believed before you were in Christ and who you are and what you believe now that you are in Christ, walking in the light as a child of God. The hymn writer John Newton once wrote, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say, I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that. And those are the words of a fully assured, obedient Christian with faith in the one true Lord Jesus Christ. If you here, friend, if you are hearing this and you are very aware that you are not a Christian based on these two tests alone, may God be pleased to continue to open your eyes to this reality that you might have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sin that you might walk in the light and no longer walk in darkness. Third and final test is the test of love. What is your relationship with God's people? What do we think about Christ's church? Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love God his brother. Now, n- notice John doesn't make this as sort of an optional or a nice ending to the whole thing. It's not a maybe or a would be nice or a hopefully one day, but it is a necessary thing. You can't say, I love God, but <laughs> I really hate people. No, he says, if you love God, you will also love your brother in Christ. That should, that should make sense to us. Imagine Imagine if the church was like your family reunion. Everyone has the same name, but there's all kinds of secrets and there's all kinds of problems and terrible pasts that weren't resolved because there was a lot of people who didn't love one another. I'm not the only one. I'm certain that my family reunions are a lot like yours. And the reality is, and unfortunately... The church like that would be awful and and some churches, quite frankly, are awful because they possess the right doctrine. They are very sure that their lives are being lived in obedience to the commandments of God, but they have no love for one another. So you see, love for the church, love for the bride of Christ, and love for the people of God is the third leg to this stool. Without it, the stool cannot stand. And he tells us in chapter 4 and verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And I want you to notice how he wrote it. If we love one another. It's conditional. If we love one another, God abides in us. It's evidence. So you see, that's a test. Are you walking in the light? Well, how can you know? One way you know is if you love the people of God. And in this, we have, once again, we have assurance. John actually addresses this issue of Christian assurance by this very test. Back in chapter 3, in verse 14, he writes very clearly, unequivocally, we know 
that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Am I a Christian? Well, it will show in my love for the body of Christ. And this isn't just having warm, fuzzy feelings about other people because we sort of like their personality. That's not what he means. This isn't just saying, yeah, I love them and I care about them. But we're talking here in the way that the Bible talks most often about what love is, primarily as a verb, love as an action, something we do. Love is something we do more than it is something that we think or we feel. And so he goes on in verse 16 of chapter 3 to explain this. He writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, if you say you love your brother and he is in genuine need, and you have a means to meet that need, but you don't meet that need, your talk is cheap. You don't love him. Otherwise, it would show. And if it does show, and that need is being met, you're showing love. It's visible, it's real, it's tangible, and it comes at the expense of the giver. That's love. So are you a Christian? Can you have assurance of your faith? Do you know that you are in Christ? Three important tests to give yourself. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you have faith in him, trusting that he is who he says he is and has accomplished what he has been sent to accomplish for you? Do you have a desire and do you give your life to obeying the commands of God? Jesus says if you love him, you will do what he commands. You can't do it perfectly. You won't do it perfectly But what is your heart's desire and what are you doing to stay focused on walking in the light of Christ? And third, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? What do you think about the church? What do you think about God's people? Are you more interested in finding your friendships among worldly people because you think they'll have more fun, are more easygoing, and want to do the same things you want to do, and your brothers and sisters in Christ are just sort of boring and lifeless to you? John summarizes all of this in his final chapter, chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. He writes, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Notice there he mentions love, obedience, and faith. And so friend, is the world more attractive to you than that? If so, beware. John ends with a warning. Verse 21 of chapter 5, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols of false Christ. Keep yourselves from the idols of the world that call you away from obedience and wrap you up into the things of the world. Keep yourself from the idols that make the people of God seem boring and uninteresting and unlovable to you. And as you do these things, as you walk in the great truths and promises in Christ, you will walk in the light And you can have true assurance that you are in Christ and that he is in you and that you have hope beyond hope in the life to come. What a blessing to us. 
You see, the Bible is filled with this. We don't just get commands. We don't just get these imperatives, do this, don't do that. But we get all the reasons why. And we don't just get told to believe. And if you believe, you'll, you have faith in Jesus and you'll be saved. But we have evidences that the Bible gives us. What will that look like? Here's how it works out in your life. God is so kind and so gracious to give us that, that we can, as John says, we can know we have faith. We can know we are in Christ. And if we can know we are in Christ, we have everything in the world to rejoice in. It's the greatest gift in the world. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again for giving us from your word all that we need to see that we can have assurance that we truly are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it be for us that we never waver in understanding that Jesus is who he says he is. May we never waver from having a desire to obey you in our lives and to produce good works in our lives by the power of your spirit that we might walk in a way that we know is best for us and is glorifying to you. And may you be pleased to increase in the hearts of all of your children the love for the brethren, that we might walk together in faith and unity forever and ever. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this evening who does not know Christ, that as these tests of faith have been laid before them, that as they consider their own heart, Lord, that you would bring them to the end of themselves to no longer stand upon their own righteousness, no longer depend on some faulty understanding of who Jesus is, no longer depend on their good deeds and efforts, and no longer depend on being simply friendly or nice without any true love. May it be, O oh God, that they would know that by faith in Christ alone that they too could have an assurance of everlasting life. And may it all be to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org dot o-r-g